Welcome to Day Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This is a podcast series I'm putting on so that authors are able to connect with the readers even though we're all self-quarantining and social distancing and keeping safe during COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please check out daybeautiful.net where you can access book recommendations, more author interviews, and links to every single podcast I'm doing on the Day Beautiful podcast feed. Today's guest is Rachel Verona Cody, the author of Too Much, How Victorian Constraints Still Bind Women Today. Hey, Rachel, how's everything going on your end? Pretty good. Um, I, uh, I sprained my ankle yesterday, which, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things is, is pretty small potatoes, but you know, um, I could have, I could have done without that, but otherwise I'm, 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 I'm holding up. Okay. I definitely understand. I'm dealing with, uh, my last internet provider, I moved from Phoenix to Denver recently, and my last internet provider is trying to charge me $100 for no reason. And so yeah. I've been on the phone with them all morning, and I'm just like, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Could you guys calm down and just waive this fee real fast? And just, yeah, just, and just like, give me a break, man. Like, yeah, so that's that's cool that you moved to Denver. My um, my uh, brother-in-law lives there. My uh, my husband is from Boulder. I I love that area. I, I mean, I hope you're you're settling in well, and um, at some point you'll get to enjoy everything it has to offer. I'm pretty excited. There's some good bookstores here, some good cafes, so life is good. And the the tattered cover mm-hmm. is yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've heard. And book bar, yeah, Those book, are... book bar. I really like. It's I like how cozy it is. Um, tattered cover is great. You did. I saw on your tour list that you were there in early March. Did you actually get to go before all this started? That was my very last, that was the last stop for me before everything, um, everything was, was canceled, uh, before, you know, the outside was canceled. Uh, um, so, and, and yeah, it it was, it was lovely. Um, and, uh, uh, really it was a wonderful, uh, conversation. I got to, uh, talk to, uh, my writer pals, Yvette Dion, who actually she has a book coming out, I think this month, uh, Lifting As We Climb, about um, uh, black women's uh, fight for the vote. And then um, and my friend Lindsay King Miller, who wrote uh, this wonderful book, Ask a Queer, Ch- Ask a Queer Chick. Uh, which she is a she is a um, an advice column that uh, is all those uh, uh is that shares that title. Uh, so anyway, it was, it was, a, if, if it all had to end after that, it was, it was a good way to end. Yeah. And your book too much, it did come out in February. So you were able to get some tour dates in. Um, and this is kind of to replace the tour dates you lost. What is too much about? Too much broadly, um, sort of, uh, considers the various ways that, um, that feminine excess have been has been pathologized, um, and uh, so when when I say too much, I'm I'm gesturing to um, to the to that sort of pseudo playful but but kind of more admonishing. Uh, uh, remark you you know this person's too much the they're they're too much this is too much and uh you know with and i and i talk about this in the book but uh but the thing about saying that somebody's too much you know there it's it's very vague and 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 that's i think what makes it so pernicious because you know it it sort of suggests that there's something fundamentally uh flawed and, and, and wrong, uh, that, that there, there's just a sort of excessiveness about you that, uh, that kind of permeates, uh, your, your disposition in all these sorts of different ways. And because, um, well, my training, uh, is in, in Victorian literature, um, which, uh, you know, is, is one reason that I, uh, I ground, uh, my analysis in uh, Victorian literature and culture, but it also made a lot of sense to me uh, 
to take that as as a starting point uh, because the Vic- the Victorian period is when you have all of these uh, you know, wild hysteria diagnoses, uh, a, a lot, just a lot of uh, there was there was a lot of agitation over over sexuality. Um, you know, the Victorians, uh, you know, often we, we say something's Victorian to suggest that it's prudish, but actually the Victorians are really obsessed with sex. They just, you know, really uh, were, uh, they were really obsessed with controlling it and controlling, you know, who got to speak about it, um, which is something if you, you know, if, if you ever uh, were assigned Michel Foucault, that's something that, that he writes about. Uh, but, you know, but particularly women were, were this real site of anxiety. Their bodies were sites of anxiety because, you know, the med, the medical institution didn't really, uh, didn't fully understand them, didn't, weren't really making much of an attempt to understand them. Um, and then, uh, you know, you could be diagnosed as a hysteric, uh, for, for any number of reasons, uh, you know, and, and often enough, uh, your diagnosis wasn't going to have a whole lot to do uh, with whatever, what, what your testimony was, you know? So, you know, somebody, and this, this was much, this is a little bit later, but, you know, Sigmund Freud would see these patients and, uh, you know, a woman might've been uh, sexually assaulted by, uh, by a family member, but he, he often seemed like he was much less interested in the trauma of that and, you know, and some, and, uh, and was, he was much more interested in, in making some sort of creating some sort of theory about, you know, wanting to sleep with your father. Uh, so, um, so anyway, there, there, that's, it's a really, it's a really fertile ground for, for this kind of conversation. And, um, and there are a lot of ways, uh, to, to think about the sort of ideologies that were, uh, 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 so, uh, that were really, uh, pervasive then, uh, and, uh, and that, you know, you know, endure now, you know, you know, maybe take a different form, uh, but are, uh, but have been sort of, you know, have been pretty tenacious. And then before we dive further into the book, I would love if you read some for our readers. Sure. Sure. Um, so I'll just go ahead and read just the first, uh, the first few pages Mm -hmm. of A weeping woman is a monster. So too is a fat woman, a horny woman, a woman shrieking with laughter. Women who are one or more of these things have heard, or perhaps simply intuited, that we are repugnantly excessive, that we have taken illicit liberties to feel or fuck or eat with abandon. After bellowing like a barn animal in orgasm, hoovering a plate of mashed potatoes, or spraying out spit in the heat of expostulation, we flinched in self-scorn. Ugh, that was so gross. I am so gross. On rare occasions, we might revel in our excess, belting out anthems with our friends over karaoke, perhaps. But in the company of less sympathetic souls, our uncertainty always returns. A woman who meets the world with intensity is a woman who endures lashes of shame and disapproval from within as well as without. In Victorian England, the medical establishment would have labeled us hysterical, pathologically immoderate in emotional and physiological expression. Here's how a German-born doctor practicing in London, one Julius Althus, defined the condition in 1866. All the symptoms of hysteria have their prototype in those vital actions by which grief, terror, disappointment, and other painful emotions and affections are manifested under ordinary circumstances and which become signs of hysteria as soon as they attain a certain degree of intensity. 
of course, a certain degree of intensity invites a vast range of interpretation. And when it came to emotional eruptions, the Victorians were none too generous. Hysteria was a convenient means of pathologizing and thus regulating feminine feeling and its expression. Today, as many among us grieve our political optimism and hammer out our anger on social media, we find our husbands, our boyfriends, our parents, our politicians diagnosing us with similar maladies. We're wallowing in it. Why are we so freaked out? We must be bleeding out of our wherever. Take a Xanax girl and calm down. We are the women who can hardly contain our screams, and oftentimes we don't. Our muchness oozes from our pores like acidic sweat, ranker, more caustic, less concealable than ever. But however brutally the stigma may sizzle in this political moment, this sense that we are somehow too much is hardly new to us, nor will it dissipate whenever Donald Trump's vise finally unclenches from our skulls. I conceived the idea for this book, a critical cry of bullshit against this concept, too much, some years ago, during a comparatively happier presidency. This term, too much, pernicious in its ambiguity, attacks with the force of history. It's the overdetermined exponent of ideologies centuries old, structured by misogyny, racism, and homophobia. American society fetishizes white heteronormative propriety. It wants its girls pliable and demure, girls who safeguard both, te both tears and sex for the privacy of the bedroom, who keep their voices measured during meetings, and who brush their hair and blot their lipstick. It worships the woman who, if she should experience distress, will wear her sadness like Lana Del Rey or Middlemarch's Dorothea Brooke with genteel sensuality and relative quiet. Anything more, well, that would be excessive. Accordingly, you're just too much is the threat of patriarchy disguised as playful admonition. It is a warning, even a diagnosis. It is saying, this space is not yours to colonize. This power is not yours to claim. Systemic oppression relies on the careful partitioning of social space. Specifically, it requires that marginalized peoples, of which women are one broad example and women of color and queer persons are more pointedly targeted ones, dwell within corners that we shrink inside walls that loom and compress. The public devises unspoken rules of deportment born from anxieties over what we can bear to see expressed and accordingly whom we are willing to allow the privilege of expression. Reluctant to countenance emotional and physical extremes in any case, women, long regarded as the lodestars of ex excess, are eyed like shapeshifters with the power to transform into Medusa. But I've since realized that there is power in what others call monstrosity. Our refusal to abide, to prioritize the comfort of the West's hegemonic governance, lays bare the rickety scaffolding of culture's so-called behavioral norms. The roots of rules are never so deep that they cannot be wrenched from the soil. Man-made boundaries remain at the mercy of the creatures who erected them. For when we are too much, and when we refuse to apologize for that, we burst against those walls and marvel as they give way like sand. I'll go ahead and stop there. Thank you so much for reading. You mentioned that your background obviously is in Victorian history and literature what drew you to that um you know it's uh it's hard to say exactly i i think um i think it's a mix of being introduced to the literature early uh and uh forming a really really tight emotional connection with it um my my late mother uh, hadn't, she didn't, um, from, from what she said, grew up not really reading a whole lot. Um, and so then uh, years late, later, you know, when uh, my sisters and I were growing up, she was um, sort of filling in the gaps. And so we, um, you know, 
I saw her reading uh, the Brontes and um, I, uh, I started sort of following, uh, following suit. And, and so I, uh, you know, books, books like Jane Eyre and, uh, you know, this is a little later than Victorian, but Ellen Montgomery is Anna Green Gables and, um, Emily of New Moon, you know, these, uh, these are all books that, um, that feel, uh, really, uh, really woven into, um, in, into my, uh, into whatever tapestry sort of makes, uh, makes me up, you know, um, there, they were sort of, uh, where I went, uh, as I was learning to be a person, learning what it meant to be, uh, uh, feminine, um, learning what, uh, it meant to be, uh, feminine in, uh, in a world that was, uh, sort of, uh, um, and, um, and so I, and, and, you know, and I, I think I, I also, you know, they're, they're, they're really, uh, this is, you know, it might sound silly to say, but Victorian novels are just really, I mean, they're very over the top and you know, they're, they're uh, big feelings all over the place, even though there's also a lot of uh, solicitude about those big feelings. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and there are so many heroines who uh, are always chafing against the various constriction, constrictions of their milieu. And I, and I think that I, you know, as, as a, a girl who who realized that there was just something very intemperate about her, uh, who realized, oh, you know, gosh, uh, it's, I, I cry so much, you know, why do I cry so much? And, you know, why, why do I always, you know, why am I bursting and spilling out everywhere all of the time? You know, what, 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 what is this? I, I think that uh, a lot of these characters, all these books in, in, in certain ways felt like home to me, even, even, uh, unexpected. and, and this continued as I was growing up. And then, you know, I was just really, really fortunate to have some wonderful teachers, um, in, in college, my mentor, Deborah Morse, uh, she's uh, a fantastic Victorianist and I took courses with her and it, it really, uh, it, it solidified my, my love and my enthusiasm. And it also, uh, it caused, it, it sort of gave it, uh, a critical turn too, that I, I realized that I wasn't, I didn't just love, you know, I loved these books, but I also really loved think about them and think about, uh, how, how they worked and, and, uh, what they meant centuries later. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and why, uh, what, you know, what sort of, uh, you know, what it meant that, uh, you know, certain themes were traced out and, and, uh, you know, the, certain that certain tropes appeared uh so so that uh i think that's that's probably uh my uh, my origin story when, when it yeah when it comes to reading uh victorian novels i talk to mostly writers who you know write fiction or write like literary nonfiction, like memoirs and such and your book is more of a historical cultural critique criticism and so i'm really interested in the actual writing process getting down to the nitty-gritty the research and all the nerdy stuff when did you decide to actually write too much huh um well That's also it's sort of an interesting uh, path um, because, yeah, it is it's it's uh, it is largely cultural criticism. I'm I'm in there too here and there. I 
um, I used myself as, as basically a case study. So, so there's a little bit of memoir um, where I thought it made sense in terms of helping me suss out a larger, um, a larger issue or argument. Um, but, but it, but yes, I mean, but it, it, it absolutely the case. It, it's for me, it was, um, it was cultural and literary, literary criticism for, um, I, so I was in graduate school, uh, studying, studying Victorian, uh, studying Victorian novels, uh, and, uh, broadly. And, um, I was also really interested in uh, emotional responses, physiological responses. Uh, my uh, dissertation that I uh, ultimately, after uh, a really, really difficult decision, decided not to complete, uh, the dissertation that I was writing was actually uh, focused on the, how it feels or how it felt for Victorians to and so what uh, responses uh, authors had to to writing their their novels the sort of uh, responses they were attempting to elicit from readers um, so it's not uh, so at at, uh, at a glance it doesn't seem that connected but in a lot of ways, you know, it, it, at base, it's about why we feel what we feel uh, and uh, and how we feel <laughs> about that. Um, so, you know, so I was working, I was working on that and I, I was actually mostly focusing on um, on male authors. Um, but I at the same time, I uh, had started kind of writing for you know, writing on a writing blog posts and just things here and there uh, to, uh, uh, you know, as it, sort of a, almost sort of a pressure valve as, a, as an outlet uh, while I was uh, dissertating and teaching. Um, and, uh, and I, and, and something that I eventually came back to and that, and, that sort of just kept jangling around in my brain was this uh, this term from the uh, the Tim Burton adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, which came out I think in like it was 2010, 2011, and uh, I think 2010. Um, you know, and it's you know obviously I was going to see the movie because Alice in Wonderland, Victorian, you know, very much you know my thing, and the the thing. That really, um, that really stuck with me uh, was this uh, this term that they use in the movie uh, muchness. So, uh, it, you know, if you haven't seen the movie uh, at this point, Alice is nineteen. She's you know pretty. She's kind of bummed out about her current her current stitch. She's uh, supposed to be getting engaged to this guy who's just really, uh, not great. And, you know, and she's, and she's feeling, uh, you know, she, as if her world has just become very small. She ends up in Wonderland again, where things are even wackier than before. Uh, and, uh, the red queen is, has gone. She's even more murderous. And, uh, so you know the Mad Hatter and and her 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 group of of, of pals, they're, they want her to help them, but they're worried that she won't be able to because she's lost her muchness. Um, and so uh, you know as the film uh, moves towards the climax, the the uh, you know the question that Alice sort of has to contend with is you know. Where has her muchness gone? How can she, how can she summon it? Um, and the and what was really sort of interesting to me uh, was that in in the world of the film, this is this is a positive attribute. You know, it's her chutzpah, it's her her verve, her um, 
you know, it's her, it's her spark. And, and it occurred to me that if you had just thrown this made up word my way and said, give it a definition, I would have, I would have actually given it a pretty negative definition. I would have, I would have thought I would have said, oh, well, you know, that's, you know, it, it's referring to someone being being too much, somebody being just really emotionally excessive. Uh, so, you know, it's it's the noun form of, of that, of your general sort of ex- emotional excessiveness. And so it, it was interesting to me that that was that that was where I immediately went, which suggests that I obviously had some sort of. Uh, I mean, it's very clear that I was projecting <laughs> that I had some as some personal investment in this. Um, and so so I think, you know, I. It was just something that I kept thinking about, I kept thinking about the what what it means to to feel like uh, to feel like you're too much. I kept thinking about that specific term uh, and, and, and just what, uh, how a term that's as baggy as that can be really kind of weaponized. Um, and, and just the way, the different ways that, uh, culturally the way our reception of emotion is just very, it's, um, it's very gendered. It's, uh, you know, it's, Unsurprisingly, it's you know, sort of imbued by all of the sort of prevailing ideologies that um, that structure society. So you know, there's there's so much about uh, you know what we uh, what we are willing to see expressed that's um, that is uh, determined by uh, sexism and racism and homophobia. So as I was thinking about that. I, you know, I'm, I, it also, I, at some point, um, I started putting this together with, uh, with Victorian literature, you know, on my departure point was Alice in Wonderland, which, and so that, um, you know, which is, you know, a 19th, 19th century. And, and then it, I started thinking about, uh, all of the different ways uh, this, uh, uh, I, idea of being sort of emotionally corseted was something that, uh, you could really, uh, dig into, uh, in, in a Victorian archive. Uh, so I, it, it, I eventually, it eventually occurred to me that, you know, this was something, this was something I could do that I could, um, you know, I could write a different sort of book than I, than I had been initially expecting that I would write uh, a book that wasn't for a, uh, a strictly academic audience that, that wasn't, you know, that didn't, um, didn't have the same sorts of barriers. You know, I have a lot of love, uh, for, uh, academia and I, you know, and I had a one, I had wonderful experiences there and it was hard to leave, but, you know, there's so much about academic writing, uh, that, that isn't, uh, that, that can be difficult to access if you haven't, if you don't, if you don't have the privilege of, uh, of being able to spend time in graduate school. If you, uh, you know, if you haven't had access to these various esoteric, uh, theorists, historians, uh, whatnot. And, and, and so I, so I started thinking, well, what would happen if I put together my academic interests and wrote and, and wrote something that, that engaged them, but wrote about it in a way that, that felt, that felt specifically correct for what exact, for, for what it was I wanted to do. So, you know, I, how, you know, I do this, um, but also allow it to be a little bit personal. And this, and that's something that, you know, 
isn't it's it's not something you can really do uh, in academia. You know, I, I think that there are people, and and I you know I can't speak to this, um, ha- being some years out of it. Um, I think that there are a lot of people uh, in academia who are writing in more experimental ways, but you know there's uh, you know. But, but there's there's very much a tradition. It's actually something I talked to when I uh, the first event that I was able to do. I got a wonderful question from this young woman who asked me about women like me who she was who had left academia and were now writing writing books. And she asked about she asked if women like. I think her question was, do, do women have to leave academia in order to be able to write authentically? And, and it was such, it was such a brilliant question. And, and it, it was interesting because it's true. There, there are, there, there are a number of us, um, who began, who began in, uh, in academia and for, you know, for whatever reason left and, and now, and now we're writing for broader audiences and, and, there, there is something to be said that for that, you know, that, that there is a sort of erasure that takes place in uh, academic writing sometimes, or I think you can feel that way that you're, you're writing in order to sound like a, you know, a six year old white man wearing a jacket and a monocle, you know, um, and that there's, there's a certain voice that, that you need to adopt. So, you know, I, and, I, and, and maybe, and maybe that's the case. Maybe I was, maybe I did feel as if I needed to write a little bit differently. Uh, but I did still, you know, all of the, the nitty gritty that you're, I, you know, that you mentioned, I, I didn't, I, I definitely didn't want to lose that. So, you know, the, I, I love research. Uh, I love, uh, I love diving in, you know, diving into an archive, you know, maniacal about, it. um, and there is, you know, there is such pleasure in that. Um, uh, and, you know, and some anxiety too, because the thing is, is that especially when you're dealing with, you know, 19th century literature, I mean, there's just so much of it. And, you know, I knew writing the book that I was never, that you could probably, you know, somebody could hand me a list of 50 texts and say, what about these two? And I'd say, yeah, no, I probably, those probably would have been great to, to incorporate too. But you know, it's there, you're never going to get to every, to everything. But I, but I also, I, I kind of love that in, in a way I love, uh, I love the abundance and I, um, I love knowing that there's always just going to be so much for me to read. And so uh, the thing that was hard about uh, working on this book is that I would pick up a book that I've already read multiple times and I knew I didn't need to reread it. I just needed, you know, to find a passage or something. And, you know, two hours later, I'm, I'm still sitting reading The Mill on the Floss or, or Middlemarch or... Uh, you know, uh, or, or uh, north and south, and uh, so so having uh, you know to having to to use uh, some some discipline, uh, you know that it's uh, that you know that can be uh, uh, not not as fun, but uh, you know even if I'm writing about too muchness, you know there there. There was a time and place for for the indulgence. I I couldn't reread uh, I couldn't reread everything just because I I wanted to, uh, but but it was certainly hard. Mm-hmm. Part of the I I, I just recorded a, another one of these podcasts yesterday uh, with uh, someone who wrote a thriller, and we were talking a lot about pace and about breaking the rules of of what a traditional mystery thriller's pace was. Do you think about things like that when you're writing books about? how the audience will digest books like this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this, that's a lesson that I think I'm still learning and I'm so fortunate to have had a wonderful editor who, you know, who also edits novels 
um, and who I think, uh, you know, I think she, well, this is something that she's a real expert in. Um, and absolutely was something that I, I needed, that I needed to think about that. Um, I knew that, that tonal shifts are tricky. Um, you know, I, you, you're inevitably not going to write, I'm not going to write a paragraph about losing my mother the same way that I'm going to write a paragraph about the way that a term is used in, you know, Wuthering Heights or something, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be different. And so, um, so, so uh, trying to, to think about, um, how that ebb and flow works, uh, or, you know, how, what, what's going to make it, uh, as inviting as possible for the reader, uh, while still sort of crafting the chapter in the way that it need it needs to be written in order to make uh to make the point you know that that's uh it's really um you know i think it's 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 an art form all its own and it's one you know this is my first book and it's something that i think you know because uh, you know this is the sort of thing that i i like i'd like to keep doing and i tend to I tend to be in, more interested in books that are generically promiscuous. Uh, you know, this is something that I think I'm going to be thinking about always, you know, how, um, how to move in and out of, uh, different, um, uh, different modes and, uh, but how at the same time, uh, to, uh, to maintain a sort of, cohesiveness. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's always hard, you know, when you're, when you're trying to do something that's a little different and that is, you know, by its nature, uh, you know, that is sort of change changeable, you know, it's, um, and you know, I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't, I got it right. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I think I did. Um, you know, that it's just, um, I, I think that one of the things I'm learning about writing a book is that, uh, when you, when you reread it, um, you, you will then think of like 50 different ways that you would then rewrite the book, which is, so, uh, I guess the lesson there is never reread your own work. After, after reading it. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I, it was, it was, it was a really interesting thing. The first time, right after I had turned in, um, my first rough draft of the book and, um, my editor and I were talking about pacing. It was, it was this, um, it was, it was really, it was fascinating and it was humbling to think, to be, to think, oh my gosh, you know, I, this is something before, before I, tried to do this this was something pacing was something that I thought about with regards to fiction but it's absolutely important with nonfiction. even you know even just when it comes to the sort of material you're using you're you're engaging like you know if if you're writing about something bleak you you need to there needs to be levity there needs to be a break at, at some point. I mean, I, I, you have to give, you have to know when to give your reader a break. You know, you need to know, you need to think about when, uh, to ask them to stay with you in something, even if it's difficult and when there needs to be a pause and when, when you need to allow for people to take a breath. Um, mm. and you know, I, I think that's, that's necessary in whatever you're writing. And then, just kind of looking forward, I know you we too much was a lot of your life leading up to twenty twenty if it finally came out in February. What do you kind of hope to write about, or what's interesting you now more victorian stuff or yeah, I think 
you know, I think the Victorians will always be, you know, they're, they're always going to be a great love, but I, you know, I think, first of all, I think the Victorians are, you know, they are, their importance, you know, there, there's a lot to think about in Victorian literature, but I also think it's very, very important to always think about it alongside, uh, uh, to, or to put it with a broader archive, because there's, you know, the the Victorian archive is, is a very limited one. It's very white, it's very male, very gender. Um, and, you know, and I think I will return to it. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. The, the thing that I've really been interested in lately and that I sort of started researching and I'm not sure where it will go. I've, I've thought a lot about uh, earnestness and irony and or in their interaction. The, the thing that's really uh, a, a trend that's, that started really uh, fascinating me uh, is on Twitter. I've noticed, I started noticing how people, myself included, will, um, will, will say warning, earnest tweet, like as if, you know, uh, as if you have to sort of ready everyone and, and, and as if you have to acknowledge it and by acknowledging it, that somehow, uh, that safeguards you from seeming too smarmy, I guess I, but it's, um, it's that, but that's been something I, that's really interested to me. People who, who say that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm too earnest for Twitter, like, which is actually something that I feel like I'm like, well, I'm not really, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I, I'm, I can be kind of sarcastic, but ultimately I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I'm a, just a wide eyed that wants, that just wants to tell everyone she loves them and wants to be loved too. I mean, like, so, um, and so I was sort of, you know, I was, I've been reading, I've been reading about, um, earnestness in a larger cultural sense. Um, I think this might mean if I, if I want to do something with it, that I might have to read Infinite Jest and I'm a little worried about that because I really don't want to read Infinite Jest and uh, no, no offense if you like it. Oh, I have never even attempted to read it. <laughs> My my husband's read it. It's like sitting on our bookshelf, just sort of like staring at me, like, "Hey, come on, give me give me a try." And I'm just like, "Ugh." But um, anyway, uh, that that's sort of what uh, where my my head has been, and uh, which would you know it would mean dipping into the Victorians a little bit because I have to write about Oscar Wilde and his play importance of being earnest um so uh you know so that that's that's the sort of larger inchoate project i'd been thinking about but you know the the thing about a moment like this is that it sort of it throws everything up in the air and i i can't imagine writing any sort of cultural criticism that didn't acknowledge this moment um because I mean, this is such a uh, this is such a fissure. Uh, this, you know, and there, I think there's no way to think about, um, you know, the way that we live and the way that we receive various cultural artifacts, and um, you know. Uh, and the way that we, the ways that we interact with each other, there's no way to do that. I think with, um, without thinking about what we're living through right now, um, it just sort of demands attention. And, um, and I think that that's going to be, you know, I, I think that all writers, you know, whatever we're, whatever we're working on, uh, I, I imagine that this is something that we're all going to be grappling with and, um, you know, wondering, okay, well, you know, what, um, what does, uh, you know, what does the arc of, of a book of cultural criticism look like, uh, 
after uh, living through, you know, if, if, you know, if we're, you know, after being fortunate enough to live through uh, a pandemic and, uh, and as we're all sort of, you know, having to renegotiate uh, the ways that we live in the world. Um, you know, I, that probably sounds very confused and, and, and but I, I think, uh, and it's because, uh, I, I think right now I am sifting through a lot of confusion. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't, I think that this is something that we will be trying our best to make sense of. Uh, uh, decades. And it's odd to think about living in an, an enormous historical moment like this and realizing that if you're lucky, it's, it's kind of mundane, you know, but it's also, but what the ways that it will be written about in, you know, 50 years from now, it may, that may seem very foreign to what our experiences of it are. But yeah, it's, 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 it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely wild. Um, you mentioned how you would might have to crack open Infinite Dressed and revisit Oscar Wilde for this, this project. Are you reading anything for pleasure now or before all this started? What, what interests you just to crack open a book? Oh, gosh, I'm, um, well, there's so many so many wonderful books coming out right now. I, every once in a while, I feel a little bit of despair over how I will probably never in my lifetime read even the smallest fraction of everything that I want to read. But, um, I, you know, I am, you know, I'll read, so I'll read so many things, so many various things. I mean, I don't know what, if there's exactly a rhyme or reason to, uh, what I read, um, you know, I, uh, there's generally some, you know, something Victorian in, in my diet, uh, at, at any given time. Um, but I, you know, I love, uh, I love so much of the contemporary fiction being written right now. Um, I'm currently reading Mary South's You Will Never Be Forgotten, a short story collection that, I, that I just think is phenomenal. I, uh, I got nearly halfway through just in one sitting and it's, um, it's this wonderful textured exploration of, uh, the ways people use technology to sort of, uh, to navigate the, the tragedy, uh, of, of living, you know, to, to deal with grief and, and loneliness. Um, and, uh, you know, it, and it's sort of black mirror in the best way, you know, and, and I think, uh, there's, you know, it's really unflinching, but it's also so tender. Uh, so I love that. Uh, I, I'm, and I'm sure I'm going to love, uh, the second half of it just as much as the first. Um, I recently read uh, Don't You Know I Love You by Laura Bogart. It's another wonderful novel. Uh, these are both debuts, by the way. Uh, uh, debut novel uh, that also came out in March. Um, and uh, let's see, I read uh, uh, Temporary by uh, Hilary Leichter. Wonderful. Um, uh, and uh, I think... Uh, you know, for anyone living in the gig economy, I mean, I think any reader, uh, everyone, everyone should read all of these books. Uh, but in particular, there, uh, what her sort of um, surrealist uh, vision of uh, of uh, gig work is is uh, is awesome. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, you know, I've. I've always, I've always got such, such a stack. I'm, I've been waiting to read Jenny Offel's, uh, whether I, I, you know, I'm like so many, I'm a, I'm a fan of her. I, I really want to read, I've read 
a few books by Marilyn Robinson and love them so much. And I just bought Lila and home and I want to, uh, I want to read those too, because I know she's got yet another coming out. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I hope it's still coming out. Yeah. I haven't uh, heard anything. I, I, I definitely love, I actually read Lila first out of all her stuff because I came onto her late and I think I just missed all the other ones. And then I went back and read everything. I was like, wow, she is just a master of words and everything. I mean, it's, yeah, it's tremendous. And I think actually right now, I, if, if, if you haven't read Gilead, I would say Gilead is just such a, a warm, it's, it is an ideal book. If you, if, if your listeners are looking are looking for something tender and full of love and that, but that is still wise and, and, and really sharp. I think that it, that is really an ideal book for this moment. I, um, I read it right after my mom died and, um, and, and it was, it, it's it's hard it's hard to explain but I think be, because it's epistolary it's a uh, the narrator is you know is, he's writing the, these letters for uh, his child which he's assuming his child will read after he's after he's gone and so I think because of that there's just it's such a love there's it's such a loving nur- nurturing book even when it's grappling with things that are difficult. Thank you so much to Rachel Verona Cody for hopping on and talking about her book too much. You can find her on the web at rachelveronacody.com. She's on Twitter at rveronacody. I'll have those both linked in the show notes. As always, you can find Day Beautiful on the internet at daybeautiful.net, on all of the social medias at daybeautiful. I'm Adam Cabbage. Until next time, have a good one. <laughs>